dads for dads only. Listen to what he has to say again, as uh, I use it as an introduction for what we'll be talking about again today. He says this, though most people begin a marriage convinced that an extramarital affair is out of the question, the disturbing statistics suggest that over half the married population of this country will sooner or later have an affair. So as a result of that statement and a result of the studies and conclusions that he's come up with, I think it's important that we learn how to affair-proof our marriage. So that's what we started to talk about the last time we are together. Now I realize that some of us feel that um, an affair is absolutely, positively, 100%, totally out of the question. And I just want to warn you, as we talked last time, that if your attitude is that it could never happen to you, um, that that type of pride is usually what precedes the fall. And uh, we need to recognize that and we need to be sensitive to that. In fact, um, one thing that I learned about prideful people is that, you know, sometimes they can be quite foolish in their pride. Uh, we, we have uh, quite a number of friends that we met through the Rams that were from Texas. They were athletes that came out of the Texas marketplace, so to speak. And uh, they were some of the most prideful, arrogant people that I've ever met. And, uh, and I love them all, but uh, there's, uh, there was a certain sense where their pride was carried a little bit too far. And if you watch the Dallas Cowboys at all this year, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. But, um, but uh, preach it, brother. No, <laughs> but, uh, but I just want to share a story with you about a Texas farmer who was in Australia, just to kind of see, show you, you know, sometimes that this pride can be a stumbling block. But anyway, this Texas farmer and rancher was in Australia visiting a ranch that was down under. And um, while he was there, the Australian farmer thought, well, I'll take him around. I'll show him, you know, our land. I'll show him what we do and all that kind of stuff. So he takes him out to this apple orchard that they had. And, and the Australian farmer says, you know, well, here's our apples and blah, 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 blah. And the Texan looked at him and said, shoot, in Texas, we got grapes that are bigger than these apples. And the Australian kind of looked at him, smiled, and he said, well, okay, we'll go over here. And they went over to this big watermelon patch that they had, and they were raising, growing watermelons. And, and he said, you know, this is our watermelon field right here, and here's where we generate all the watermelons. And, and the Texan looked at him and said, shoot, in Texas, we got apples that are bigger than these melons. And the Australians are getting a little bit, a little upset about this. And right when he was ready to say something to him, this kangaroo jumps out of the brush, bounces across in front of him. The Texan jumps back and he goes, what, what, what was that? He goes, hey, mate, don't you all have grasshoppers in Texas? <laughs> you know, there, there's just a certain point where this arrogance, you know, can lead us into trouble. I like a... Uh, the one friend from Texas got to LAX. He was going to call the Rams to come pick him up. And he got on the phone. He picked up the phone. He said, uh, you know, dialed the number. And the opera said, well, that'd be $2.50 for the first three minutes. He said, shoot, man. In Texas, you can call Helen back for a dollar. And the operator said, yes, sir. That's because in Texas, that'd be a local call. <laughs> anyway... Well, enough Texas bashing for one morning. No, no, keep going, huh? No, anyway. So anyway, the point is to affair-proof our marriage. See, the problem is you have to believe that this is a possibility in your life. You just have to believe it. Because if you believe that this is a possibility, then you'll be motivated to do something about it. See, the problem that I see is that many of us who don't believe that things are possible in our life, oh, it's not possible that my wife could ever leave me. After all, I'm me. You know, and we have this attitude, and it's like, you know, and you need to realize that that's the kind of pride that always precedes the fall. 
We've got to realize we've got to work hard at maintaining our relationship with one another. We've got to work hard. If any of these statistics are true, and, you know, and I'm sure that depending on what group they've studied and all that kind of stuff, it, it, it will skew that a little bit. But the bottom line is this. If any of these statistics are true, and even if it was you know, 25% of all married couples will somehow or another have to deal with an affair, don't you think that that risk of 25% or 20% or, or 10% is enough of a risk that will make you want to work harder at affair-proofing your marriage? So you've got to believe that it's a threat in order to do something about it. And so that's what I'm, I'm hoping that we understand. And the last time that we were together, we started to take a look at what I would call six positive steps, six ways that we can learn how to affair-proof our marriage. The first one that we talked about was, step number one, is minister to your mate's sexual needs. Take care, you know, in simple terms, all that it means is this, take care of business at home. Meet your responsibilities. Do your job. Fulfill your duty. Whatever you want to call it, understand this, that you are responsible to take care of your mate's physical needs. Just get the job done. You know, I don't care if it wears you out. Who yelled amen? Oh, <laughs> now, that was dangerous, wasn't it? That was, just, that was just an amen for all the guys, huh? I hear you. All right, now try to pay attention now. Now try to pay attention to the rest of what we're going to talk about today, okay? I know you're just kind of like off track right at this point. You're jotting this down. What was that all about? But uh, that was, I told him to say that. But the bottom, I mean, even if it wears you out, look, this, look at this. I try to duplicate this because I just, I think this is the greatest. This was a letter to Ann Landers, okay? And I try to get it on the overhead so it would make more sense. And, and obviously it makes for much better visual than it does audio, so... Here's, here, here's what this lady writes. She writes, Dear Ann Landers, I'm writing to tell my problem. It seems I've been married to a sex maniac for the past 24 years. He makes love to me regardless of what I'm doing. Ironing, washing dishes, sweeping. I would like to know if there is anything... And, and I, I... One can only imagine what happened at the desk. But... You know, whatever, whatever, you know, whatever you got to do. So, and for the people that don't get it, would you explain it to them? Because I know some of you out there are like going, I don't get it. What, what happened? Well, okay. See, if you're listening by cassette, too bad. Anyway, where were we? Okay, no, that's, that's the first thing we talked about. And the second thing we talked about is that we need to meet our mate's emotional needs. Meet our mate's emotional needs. You know, we spend a great deal of time talking about ways that we can do that, but the bottom line of all of it is this. We need to spend time with one another, and we can't be in a hurry. You know, a typical guy, we're in a hurry. I mean, you got emotional need? Okay, I'll meet it. How can I meet it? Okay, got that taken care of. Check it off the list. You know, and you just can't do that. I like what Dennis Rainey writes in one of his Family Life conferences. Listen to this. He says, at one of my conferences, I was approached by a man who had been married for about two years. He said, Dennis, my wife... Uh, she hasn't. Uh, she hasn't. Uh, she hasn't uh, been able to uh, been able to uh, be truly satisfied in our relationship. And he said, "Oh, you mean she hasn't?" Yeah, that's what I mean. Well, may I ask you a couple questions? Would that be okay? And the young man said, "Sure, whatever you want. I'll tell you the truth." He said, "Okay, listen. How much time are you taking just to kind of get her ready? You know, to prepare to warm her up a little bit." He goes, "Oh man, I'm taking quite a while, a long time, really." He says, "Well, tell me, give me some ideas as far as time is concerned. How long?" Young guy said, how long? Well, um, two, two, three, four minutes. He said, man, you know, I, I'm, I, 
four minutes. I'm taking a lot of time to get it ready. This guy looked at him, smiled for a second, and said, look, I'll tell you what. Tonight, take an hour. This young guy looked at him and said, an hour? What in the world am I going to do with her for an hour? And he looked at him and he smiled and he said, just ask her and she'll tell you. You know, it's funny because, you know, as he tells this story, I was thinking, that's the difference between men and women, isn't it? Men and women. I used to say that, you know, men were like microwave ovens and women were like crockpots. I used to say that. I don't say that anymore. Because a woman came up to me once and said, you know, I think we would prefer the term slow cookers. <laughs> so anyway, men are like microwaves and women are like slow cookers. But uh, anyway, so he says the next morning I saw him and he said uh, his face was so excited it seemed to light up the room when he walked in and obviously things had gotten much better. Why? Because his wife needed some time with him. He says all of us need time and when we take time to put our physical love for each other in its proper perspective, it can mean excitement, delight, joy, and opportunity to just play and have some fun. He says one of my best feedback letters I got from a conference went like this. When you suggested last night for us to be more creative in romance, you never gave us a warning that it could be dangerous. Rule number one, always be prepared, at least with a spare key. After dinner in the sunset, we decided to take your advice to add a little romance and be a little daring. Staying here at the hotel, we crept out onto our fourth floor balcony for an incredibly romantic view, not to mention privacy. Well, unbeknown to us, while we were communicating and, quote, learning more about one another, the maid was turning down our bed and leaving those ever-scrumptious night mints. She didn't know we were on the balcony. We didn't know she was in the room. Well, maybe you can guess the rest. She locked the sliding door. <laughs> Signed, two lovers, romantic sky, and lots of privacy. Two lovers, romantic sky, lots of privacy, and enjoying being together with each other. See, don't forget that if you're going to meet the physical needs, you have to meet the emotional needs. And sex begins in the kitchen. And it begins in the family room. And it begins in the living room. And it begins out in the yard. And it begins in the garage. And it begins when you're driving in the car. See, it starts in every area of life. And when you enjoy being with one another in every area of your life, the bedroom takes care of itself. I remember some guy told me, he said, I think you said once that sex begins in the kitchen, and if you're lucky, you can even end it there too. <laughs> I don't remember ever saying that to anybody. I don't know where he got that, but it was kind of funny at the time. A lot more funny then than it was today, huh? All righty, number three, you ready for this? Six positive steps. If you're going to fair-proof your marriage, number three is critical. You need to maintain a pure thought life. Maintain a pure thought life. The starting point of every affair is in our thought life. Now, granted, your spouse may not be meeting your physical needs. They may not, he or she may not be meeting your emotional needs. And you may have communicated those needs, which is critical because if you're not getting your needs met, hey, listen, you know, if you're not getting your physical needs met, you need to communicate that. If you're not getting emotional needs that met, you need to communicate that. And I realize that some of you have communicated that and it's fallen upon deaf ears. And frankly, that gets frustrating in a relationship to be telling a person the same thing. I've been telling you this for years and you don't seem to get it. You don't seem to understand that I'm serious. 
you don't seem to understand how critical that this is. How many times I got to tell you the same thing? You're not listening to me anymore. And we get frustrated with one another. And that's why I believe that you need to believe that it's a possibility that you could lose your marriage to somebody else. You need to learn to listen, and you could be shouting this back and forth to one another, not hearing a thing. And it's at this point that very dangerous things can begin to take place in your thought life. And it's at this point where you can say, but I told him what I needed. I told her what I needed. And she doesn't tend to listen to me. She's not hearing her. He's not hearing what I'm saying. And we begin to entertain thoughts that, you know what, maybe somebody else out there can hear what I'm trying to say. If you're going to affair-proof your marriage, you've got to maintain a pure thought life. Let me give you an example. In Proverbs 6, in, the, in verse 25, in a chapter that contains a great deal of advice about adultery, we read this, Do not desire her beauty in your heart. What he's saying is, listen, sir, if your wife's not meeting your physical needs and there's somebody else that comes along in your life, do not desire to be with her. Do not even entertain that possibility. Do not even entertain the thought that maybe this is the answer to the problem that you're having in your marriage. He said, don't even think about it. Don't desire her. Don't lust after her. Don't give it another thought. Don't give it a second consideration. And it goes on to say, nor let her catch you with her eyes. Don't make eye contact. Don't see if there's an availability there. Don't let each other look into one's eyes as to say, I'm available if you're available. So don't even look at each other in that way. We need to recognize how dangerous that is. And many of us get frustrated and we begin to believe that, well, maybe that's the direction that I need to go. Let me give you another example of how dangerous our thought life is. If you've got your Bible, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11 is perhaps without question in my mind the strongest argument biblically to reinforce that all of us are capable and vulnerable of moral failure. There isn't one of us that cannot fail in this area of our life. And in 2 Samuel chapter 11, look at verses 2 and 3. It says, Now when evening came, King David arose from his bed, and he walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. It said, So David sent and inquired about this woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? You see what he said? He went out and he saw, and here's a man, in which, I mean, think about this for a second, that David was a man after the heart of God. David, a man after God's own heart. David, the Bible portrays as a man of intense integrity. And yet, in this particular moment in his life, he failed to capture his thought life, and he ended up in all kind of trouble because of it. He saw someone that was beautiful, and he liked what he saw, and then he entertained the thought of, well, I wonder who she is, I wonder if she's available. I wonder if. And he sent and he asked, who is she? And they came back and they told her who she was. And they specifically told him that she is the wife of another man. She is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And yet David inquired about her. He liked what he saw. He considered the possibility. And then it says that he sent for her and he lay with her and he had a sexual relationship with her. You look at that and you say, well, where did he go wrong? The bottom line is God says, you know what? A danger point in every one of our lives that we've got to protect what we see. It started with his eyes. He saw something, and men are visually stimulated. And so what he saw, he liked. There was a naked woman that was taking a bath, and he saw it, and she was attractive. She was beautiful, and he thought about it. My gosh, it would be wonderful to be with somebody that gorgeous. 
And he began to think about the possibilities. And yet when he found out the answers that she was married and all those things, it really didn't make much difference to him. We live in a culture that's pretty close to that. There's a day and age where if somebody saw a wedding ring on your finger, they didn't even think about it. If they were single, they didn't even look at you. They didn't even want to talk to you. But today it doesn't make any difference anymore. Ah, so what? Big deal. What's marriage? What's commitment? What's a marriage vow? What? I mean, it doesn't matter anymore. That's what we believe, and that's how people live. And it's critical that we need to, to be careful about what we see. And that's where it all starts. There's a letter of a young man, and that's why I talked the last time we were together. If you're a man or a woman that travels and you're on the road, you've got to be careful what you look at. Because all kind of trouble starts with what we allow our eyes to see. This young man writes about the problem that he had in his life, and I'll just read it to you. It's a true story. He says, it all started when I was six years old, and I would sneak peeks at our neighbor's Playboy magazine. I became so enamored with the female anatomy that I used to cut out advertisements from traditional magazines and carry them with me. Adults thought it was cute. They thought it was funny that I had a desire to look at pictures of nude women. It was just further evidence that I was an all-American boy. This seemingly innocent practice continued for several years, but everything changed dramatically when I was 12 and I discovered, discovered self, sexual self-stimulation. It was like going from cigarettes to heroin. Even though I had some clumsy sexual experiences early on, they were frankly disappointing compared to my sexual fantasies. In my mid-teens, I was no longer just looking at pictures. I began to read Playboy Advisor, penthouse letters, and things of that nature, and they helped me to develop what I would call my fornication philosophy. After meeting a girl at the age of 17, who, uh, 16 who would later become his wife, he continued by saying, even though we enjoyed making love daily at the age of 16, my appetite only grew more and more insatiable. After a couple of years of marriage, I became so obsessed with the need to act out the experiences that were so common in my reading. When those desires went unfulfilled, I turned to X-rated movies and films to supplement my magazine habit. My mind was so filled with these images that even when I was making love to my wife, my thoughts were continually flooded with other images. After a while, I find myself occupying private booths in the X-rated movie arcades, vicariously participating in sexual acts that would never be fulfilled at my home. I began putting enormous pressure on my wife to grow with me sexually. I threatened that I would leave her. I also had several hundred magazine mistresses along with regular trips to the arcades just to keep my interest up, but nothing satisfied me sexually. I had gotten to the point where nothing fulfilled my life. Wow. It's so important that we realize how dangerous it is to allow things to come into the windows of our eyes. Because what precedes our thoughts is what we see. And our thought life controls our actions. That's why Job said this. And I want to tell you something about what I like about what Job had to say. Because Job was married to a woman that I believe could have been a very difficult woman to live with at times. And the reason I've come to that conclusion, the man was suffering tremendously in his life. He had lost everything. He had lost his job. He had lost his businesses. He had lost his family, his children, his home. He lost everything. And on top of that, he had gotten really diseased ridden where he had boils all over his body he was as sick as a dog and, he, and his wife came to him with the comforting words curse god and die and you think sometimes that job was thinking why did i lose everything but you 
And if you remember, God allowed Satan to take all this stuff away, and Satan realized the strategic value that he had in allowing his wife to remain in his life at this particular point. But listen to these words for a moment, and I don't want to overly hammer her, because she may have just been having a bad hair day when she said that. But this is what he said. In, in, despite this sometimes volatile relationship, in Job 31.1, he says this, I had made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I look at another woman? Whoa. Really has some significance when you understand what the struggles were that the man had at home. He says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. A contract with my eyes. Listen, eyes, I'm making you a deal. I'm not going to let you look at anything that's going to be bad for my life. I'm not going to let you look at another woman in a way that's going to be difficult or bad for my marriage. I'm not going to let you look at other women and, and allow you to compare what we see to what I have. I've made an agreement of covenant, and as a result, it's impossible for me even to consider, to think about the possibility. In Matthew chapter 5, if you've got your Bibles flipped there, Jesus has the same type of advice for us, where he talks about maintaining a pure thought life and the danger when we don't. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. So he said, you know, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's one of the Ten Commandments. You've heard that, you know that, that's the way that it is, that's God's law, and you're not supposed to do that. But oftentimes what happens is when God says don't do something, we need to be filled in on the details of what the dangers are that lead to it. It's one thing to say just don't do it. It's another thing to have helpful advice and counsel on what we need to do that precedes it to eliminate that as a possibility. That's why I said this. But I say to you, I'm going to take it a step further and say that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. He's saying you heard it was wrong to have sex with anybody other than your spouse. And that's true. But I want to take it a step further and say this to you. But I want to say that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. You see what he's saying? He's saying, first of all, that our thought life always precedes our actions. Always precedes our actions. There isn't anybody in the world that's ever gotten involved with another person other than their spouse who hasn't considered it and thought about it beforehand, planned it out, and then went ahead and got, to, and got it done. It always starts in our minds. For whatever reason. Not meet my needs, whatever the reasons are, and the reasons are a hundredfold, and I'm not really concerned with all the different reasons. What I am concerned with is how we can affair-proof our marriage by maintaining a pure thought life. Turn, back to, uh, uh, turn ahead to Mark chapter 7 for a second. Mark chapter 7, look at verses 20 through 23. And Jesus was saying this, That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. What he's saying is while we struggle with our thought life, the action is what actually makes us guilty before God, although we need to recognize the fact that we're going to struggle with our thoughts, and if we don't take those thoughts captive, we're going to have a problem. And he says, that which proceeds out of the man is what defiles the man, for from within, out of the heart or the thoughts of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, oh, adulteries, 
deeds of coveting and wickedness as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness, all these evil things proceed from within and they defile the man. It all starts in our thought life, he's saying. And once it comes out into an action, that's when we're guilty before God. See, God knows we're going to struggle with thoughts all the time. I mean, I've had thoughts like, where did that come from? You know, whoa, you know, where'd that thought come from? And thank God he doesn't hold me guilty for the things I struggle with in my mind. But he's saying that we need to recognize the danger of what we struggle with in our mind and take that thought captive to the obedience of Christ, it says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, to be able to capture that thought at that particular moment and not expand upon it or allow it to grow any more than it has. And back to Matthew chapter 5, what he's saying is this, just so that you understand the, the sequence of events, he's saying that your thoughts will lead to your actions, and the lusting here that he's talking about, look what he says, but I say to you that everyone who looks, which is continual, a continual habit, says whoever looks continually on a woman, a specific woman, with what? The desire to have a sexual relationship with her. So basically, if you want to affair-proof your marriage, you want to maintain a pure thought life, what he's saying is this. If you're going down the wrong road, sir or ma'am, what's happening in your thought life is this. You are continuing to look upon an individual, a specific person that has a name. And you're saying in your mind, boy, wouldn't it be great to be with them in some sort of sexual encounter? Wonder what he, there's a name, is like. And I'd like to follow through on it. That's why Jesus said, when you get to that point in your thought life, it's just a matter of an opportunity coming along. And you're going to end up jumping, jumping at the opportunity because that's what you've been thinking about wanting to do. You follow how dangerous this is? It's just not if you like to look at women or if you like to look at men. It's kind of like, you ever see the, the, the uh, Coca-Cola commercial? The women are all up there at lunchtime or whatever, and the guy takes off his shirt and it's noon or whatever. Okay, so well, let, let me take that in a context that maybe you'd understand. It'd be like saying that one of those women who are looking out the window, waiting for this guy to take off their shirt, at this point they may not even know his name, or they may have asked around and found out, you know, his name is Chuck. And, uh, <laughs> well, I didn't want to say it was one of you, I mean, because I don't want to get any of you in trouble. You're already in big trouble today, sir. <laughs> All right, so anyway, well, they find out the guy's name. So the, the gals are looking out the window and they're saying, man, I would really like to be with him. And that's how it all begins. It's like the guy at work who says, you know what? There's a gal in our office, and I know her by name. And I looked at her once, and she caught my eye, and I've looked at her again, and I continue to look at her, and now I keep daydreaming and thinking about what it would like to be with her. See, Jesus is saying when we entertain those thoughts, it's just a matter of opportunity, and that's where we, can, that's where we get into all kind of trouble. So if you're going to fair-proof your marriage, what you need to recognize is we need to maintain a pure thought life. Romans 13, 14 says this, but you put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. The word is a military term. It's a strategy. It's a base of operation. It, it means don't even begin to strategize or plan or try to put together some course of action to fulfill this desire that you have in your life. Oh, I know. Maybe I can meet her for lunch. Oh, I know. Maybe I'll go down there at lunchtime when he's ready to take off his shirt and I'll say hi to him. I know. I've got this strategy. I've got this plan of attack. And he's saying, don't even begin to strategize or come up with a plan of attack. Take that thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And instead of thinking those thoughts, the Apostle Paul, if you've got your Bibles in Philippians 4, 8 through 13, gives us something else to think about. Philippians 4, turn with me to Philippians 4, chapter, 
chapter 4, verses 8 through 13, and listen to what he says. So instead of dwelling and thinking about those things, he says, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good repute, if there is any excellence in anything that's worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. The things that you have learned and received and you've heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace shall be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. And he says, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. I like that. I'm, you know, I've learned to be content when things aren't going great in my marriage. I've learned to be content because he goes on to say this. I've learned how to get along in humble means. I've learned how to live in prosperity. I've heard, learned how to live with my husband or my wife when things are going good. I've learned to live with her and him while things are going bad. And the reason I've learned to do that is because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's no temptation that's overtaken me, but as common to man, we're all struggling with the same things. But God is faithful. While I'm struggling with being faithful, God's faithful. If I turn to Him, I know that He'll give me no temptation that's going to overtake me. That I can turn to Him, and He's always going to provide a way of escape. He's saying, Chuck, you know what? When you start entertaining those thought lives, don't think that way anymore. You need to think pure thoughts. You need to think good thoughts. You need to think lovely thoughts, things of excellence and of good repute. You need to understand and meditate. Turn back to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, he says, you need to understand and you need to meditate on the Word of God because it's the Word of God that will set us free from the things that we struggle with. It's understanding what God's Word has to say about all these areas of life. He says, how can a young man, in, in chapter 119, verse 9, the bottom line is, this, how can a young man keep his way pure? How can I prevent from falling into this situation that King David fell into, that friends have fallen into, that others have fallen into, and that I have fallen into even in the past? How can I prevent from doing these same things again? He said, I'll tell you how. By keeping it according to the word of God. With all my heart I have sought thee. Do not let me wander from thy commandments. Thy word, O God, I've treasured in my heart so that I might not sin against you. It all starts there. Knowing the Word of God. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us it's the Word of God that's the sword of the Spirit. That's the Word of God that gives us the strength and the power and the ability to be able to fight off and defend ourselves against the temptations that we face in the world that we live in. It's the Word of God that gives us the strength to be able to realize, that, you know what, while my spirit is willing, my flesh is weak, and oh God, help me to understand that so that I'm always leaning on you and turning to you and looking to you for the source of my strength because I can't do it in and of myself. The Apostle Paul said, he said, man, I am struggling. Why do I continue to do the things that I don't want to do? And the things that I do want to do, God, I, I'm struggling to do those things. And every child of God knows that struggle. God, I want to do what's right before you. I want to do what's right before my, my mate. I want to do the right things in my marriage. But man, it's so hard. Absolutely it is. But thanks be to God for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has set us free from this body of death that we're stuck in. You see, we need to turn to him for help. We need to maintain a pure thought life. If you want to fair-proof your marriage, a fourth positive step is this. You need to monitor your relationship with others. It means you need to take serious consideration of the kind of relationship that you have with other people. 
Improper relationships with the opposite sex is probably the fastest way to lead into an affair than anything else. It's like you start taking liberties with friends of the opposite sex. And there's improper behavior and relationships that take place. And they usually involve three things. Let me give you the first one. Number one is enticing or sensual speech. Proverbs 2.16 speaks of an adulterous woman. She's a woman who flatters with her words. Proverbs 5.3 says, For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. Chapter 6, the same thing. The smooth tongue of an adulteress. Chapter 7, verse 5, An adulteress flatters with her words. At verse 21, the same thing. With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Let me, let me help you understand something. There's nothing wrong with complimenting other people. However, what I would recommend that you do is that you limit your compliments to, I like your hair, uh, nice clothes, but not, you have the most gorgeous eyes I've ever seen in my life. You know what I'm saying? You limit it to, hey, you're doing a good job, you did a great job, hey, you know, I really appreciate all the hard work that you put into, but, you know, not, gosh, those are, are you a dancer? What great legs you got. You got the most gorgeous eyes. Oh, man, look at that. Oh, have you had any children yet? Oh, this is hard to believe. You know, th those types of things, you don't want to get into that kind of discussion. And, 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 and that enticing or sensual speech is having a conversation and, and, and never have a sexual conversation with anyone other than your spouse. Never share with anyone other than your spouse the frustrations that you may be having in the physical area of your life. Never talk about sex with anybody other than your spouse. Period. End of argument, end of conversation. Why? Because nothing good comes out of it discussing it with anybody else. You know, I'm really frustrated at home. My wife's not meeting my sexual needs. Oh, really? What's the problem? And then you get into this conversation, and it, and it begins to plant thoughts in one another's minds that, hey, you know what? I'm a friend. I'm here to help you out. You know, we laugh about this, but that's exactly how all this stuff happens. I had a friend who went and had dinner with a friend of theirs. They've known each other for years. The problem was that she had just gone through a divorce, that she was very vulnerable. It was like six months later or whatever, and he was in the area and thought, well, I'll just have dinner and see how things are going, how's it going, you know, how, how you're, you know, you're recovering from the divorce and how's all that stuff going. And in the midst of the conversation, it wasn't long before he realized that she was vulnerable and she needed some, some male companionship. And she trusted him because he was a friend and they had known each other for a long time. And even though she knew that he was married, and even though that they were all best friends together, she was at a point in her life where it didn't make much difference because she just wanted some human companionship. And he began to realize, danger, I'm in danger here. And so you have to change the conversation. And you better end the evening very quickly. And what he learned from that, and I'll share with you, and I believe it's a very good principle, never be alone with anyone other than your spouse. Never go to lunch with an of the opposite sex. If you were in any kind of position of responsibility on your job and you need to take somebody out for a lunch or an evaluation or whatever, then you take someone else with you. Do not go alone. Not only is it good counsel from a marital standpoint, and it'll help you to fair-proof your marriage, but in the world that we live in today, it's going to protect you from a future sexual harassment suit. Oh, you like to take her to lunch? Did you take anybody else to lunch? How many times did you take her to lunch? Oh, you took her to lunch six times? How many times did you take any other employees to lunch? Oh, one time? Oh, but you went six times with her and only one time? Oh, what was really going on here? You see how easy it is to get ourselves in all kind of trouble? 
You know, two may be company, but let me tell you this, three is security. I don't care who you are. If you're a woman that's responsible for men in your, in your workplace and you need to go for lunch or you need to work late or you need to do something like that, then you better make sure that there's somebody else that stays with you. If you're on the road in a business trip, you never meet in your hotel room. You always meet somewhere in a public place with other people around you. Look, why, why invite trouble? There's enough trouble in this world that we don't want to invite. Why do we invite so much trouble into our life? Say, monitor your relationships. One, it has to do with our enticing speech. The second thing, it has to do with provocative dress. 1 Timothy 2.9 says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. Hey, what? <laughs> nah, just kidding. That's a cultural thing. But um, the, the point that he's making is, you know, hey, God doesn't have a problem with you looking good, but he got a problem with you if you're dressed to kill. And, the, and what you're doing is you're out on the hunt. And you've got to ask yourself, am I dressed this way? I mean, two people can wear the same outfit, but they can wear it totally differently. One can let you know by body language and enticing speech and all the rest of it that, hey, man, I'm available. And the other could be dressed discreetly, moderately, and not even allow that to be a possibility. So it's not a matter of what you're wearing, although you need to consider this. And I've said this before, I'll say it again. Listen to me. Don't ever leave your house wearing something that your mate doesn't approve of. The simplest way to take care of it. And, and, and it doesn't even have to be provocative or whatever. It could just be the fact that it doesn't match. <laughs> Done that. You know, the whole day, it's like, I'm with a guy whose clothes don't match. So the point is, hey, you know, run that by each other. Do I look okay or am I a little too revealing here? I mean, what's the problem? Oh, Make sure that it's everybody's in agreement. And the third thing is this, as far as monitoring your relationship, and that is, you know what? Many times we get in trouble because of unrestrained physical affection. It all starts very simply. It starts with a hug. I had a guy that I work with that, you know what, his, his, uh, one of the gals at his office had just gone through a divorce and she was crying in the office and she was all broken up over all of it. And just as a show of affection, he went over to her and he put his arms around her and gave her a hug. And he wanted her to know, hey, everything's going to be okay. But it was during that hug that a thought was planted. He liked the hug. And as she continued to have problems over the next several months, he continued to offer the hug and then a slight kiss. But the kiss wasn't the kind of kiss that it should have been. It shouldn't have been a kiss at all. Because he knew what he was thinking in his mind and he wasn't maintaining a pure thought life. Anyway, one thing led to another. And over a period of time, they were working late one night and everything had already been set up, man. The thought life already preceded it. The shows of affection, the enticing speech, all the stuff that went on. And she tried to attract him. And the next thing you know, they had a sexual relationship in their office. It went on for several months to the point where, you know what? He wanted to leave his wife for his secretary. And it all started with, I just want to comfort her and let her know that it's okay. To the point where, you know what, now some other man has to come along to comfort my, what will become my ex-wife because she's going to be in the same situation that my secretary was in and see how the cycle goes on and on and on. An unrestrained physical affection. Do yourself a big favor. I mean, there's nothing wrong with hugging people, and I, I'm, you know, I'm a hugger. I love to hug people. I love to let people know, hey, you know what, you know, we, I, you get a six foot five, three hundred twenty pound guy comes up to you, and it's kind of embarrassing because it's an awkward feeling, and you got to kind of go, 
You know, but all the guys in our Bible study, man, we hug each other. I mean, we, we all hug each other. We love each other. And we know that we do. You know, and I love you, man. But, um, <laughs> but, 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 but it goes deeper than that. But, you know, it, but it's when we hug someone of the opposite sex that we run into trouble. And we need to recognize that. We need to control that. We need to restrain that. Anyway, number five. I, I, I've titled this Marvel at Your Mate's Assets. And, and, the, and the reason that, that I came up with that is that so many of us forget to take a look at what we got. You know what I mean? It's like you talk to anybody that's having marital problems, and what do they dwell on? The 5%, the 10%, the 15% of their spouse that they can't, you know, they just can't tolerate anymore. But they forget about the 85% that they really love. You know, it's kind of like, oh, we don't marvel at one another. It's like when we first met and you look at it and you go, wow. Oh, man. You know, and I met my wife, wow, I just marveled at everything. The whole package, it was awesome. And it was more than just what she looked like. It was who she was. It was everything I love about her. You know, and we, and we don't marvel at one another anymore. In fact, we become critical and negative and we rip each other apart. And so I would hope if you want to fair-proof your marriage, you begin to marvel at what your mate has to offer your relationship. You know, look at all the positive things instead of dwelling on the few negative things. Because see, what happens in an affair is that you begin to marvel on what? The 15%. And you don't know about the other 85%. Isn't that true? I'll give you an example. Um, you know, you look, a guy looks at a woman and she's gorgeous and that's the 15% of who she is and that's all he's marveling at and that's all that he wants. I just want to be with her physically. And then he gets with her physically and guess what's exposed after that? The other 85% turns out to be Glenn Close. <laughs> right? If you know what I'm talking about, I'll tell you what, you want to fair-proof your marriage? Go rent the movie Fatal Attraction <laughs> and watch it together. Seriously. I know, somebody else, but that's an R-rated movie. Oh, listen to me. You've got more problems to worry about than whether you're watching an R-rated movie if you're thinking about having an affair with somebody else. So, you know, stop and think about it for a second. You know, but that's what happens in an affair. You see the 15% that you like, and you don't even know anything about the other 85%. And in a marriage, all of a sudden, we're dwelling on the 15% that we don't like, and we already know about the 85% that we do. And usually every person goes, yeah, but, but what? Take a moment and remember about all the rest of the stuff that you like. Man, it's amazing to me. Let me hear, t- turn to Song of Solomon. You want to marvel at your mate's asset? Here's a good way to do it. Song of Solomon. It's in the Old Testament. It's after Ecclesiastes. We're in chapter 7. All right, now here. Here's what I want you to do. Listen to me. You want to, you want to learn how to marvel at one another? Ah, here's a great example of it. Arr. Ah, listen to this. Listen to this. Listen to what this man, listen to what this husband says to his wife. He says, oh, how beautiful are your feet in sandals, oh, prince's daughter. Here's what I want you to do, guys. Just just follow this for a minute, and here's, here's some homework for you, okay? How beautiful are your feet in sandals, oh, prince's daughter. The curves of your hips are like jewels, the work of the hands of an artist. Your navel is like a round goblet, which never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is like a heap 
All right, okay, the cultural thing, we're losing a little bit here, but I, I, I'll figure it out. It's like a heap, like a big old heap. It's a big heap. It's a big heap of wheat fenced about with lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like a tower of ivory. Your eyes like the pools in Hezbon by the gate of Bathribbon. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon. Wait, 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 don't leave me yet. Your head crowns you like caramel, and the, and the flowing locks of your head are like purple threads. The king is captivated by your tresses. How beautiful and how delightful you are, my love, with all of your charms. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I'll take hold of its fruit stalks. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of vine, and the fragrance of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. Now, now, oh my, it's getting getting hot in here. But what's the point? You need to understand what he's saying here. He's taking terms that she was familiar with. Okay, all right, your your hips are like jewels. Okay, the work of a hands of an artist. Your navel's like a round goblet. You need to understand that, you know, he's talking about wine and being intoxicated with her love and having a strong desire for her. When he's talking about wheat, he's saying that, you know what, in that particular culture, wine and wheat were the two main uh, 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 substances that, that were good for sustenance and nourishment, and that's all that you needed. If I just have some food and drink, that's all that I need. What he's saying is, hey, you're all that I need. You're everything. My appetite, you can quench my appetite. You can quench my thirst. You can quench my desire, my physical desire. You're everything I need. And he goes on, he talks about her breasts being like fawns and talking about how these baby deer, when you look at them and how pretty they are and how gentle that they are and how peaceful they are and you just want to touch them and rub them and you can see just how soft that they are. And what he's saying is, you know what? He's showing his tenderness and his concern and and he wants to caress her gently and he goes on and he's describing all these things and what a beautiful woman that she is and you know what and 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 maybe it doesn't it loses a little bit in the translation for us because of our culture but what the point that he's making is this you know what if you want to marvel at your mate you need to take a good look at her or him and you need to be able to see them for what they are and he's saying man you know what first of all let me ask you something he praised his wife He was praising her for all of those good things about her. He was looking at her assets and he was doing an inventory checklist saying, man, look at all this good stuff. And I ask you the question, you want to fair-proof your marriage, when was the last time you praised your wife? When was the last time you sat down and wrote something like you did when you were dating a poem or a song or, 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 or a card? Or, I mean, just go buy a Hallmark card and steal the stuff that's out of the middle of them if you have to. I mean, just whatever you got to do. And, you know, but I'm not creative. Well, just go and find someone that is and, 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 and get some info. You know, and, and try this. Just think about it. Man, I mean, try it. And don't try it just at bedtime. Just walk around the house all during the day. Your neck. Your neck is like ivory tower. You're, look at that. Look at that navel. Can I see it for a second? Look at that navel. It's a goblet, man. Oh, my goodness. This is great. And it's like and you're driving down the road and you just look over and say, oh, your eyes. You're oh, watch where am I going here? Your eyes and, it's, and, and, and praise her, and listen, lady, do the same with your husband. We like to hear stuff like that. You know, come up to your husband and say, "Hey, you know that guy in the Coca-Cola commercial? You look more like him than the Hey, I love you, man." <laughs> Thank you. You know, and be romantic. 
I mean, be romantic. I mean, stop and think about it. I mean, that's what it comes down to, is that you need to marvel. Now, look what she does. Okay, guys, I give you some hints there. You know, be romantic. Be poetic. I mean, be complimentary. Praise her for what she does, and, and, and don't dwell on her for what she's not doing. And I'll guarantee you, if you concentrate on what she is doing, she's going to be more prone to start doing the things she's not doing. Right? That's just the way that it works. Now, listen to this. Okay, now here is... The lady, the wife, talking to the husband. My lover is radiant and ruddy. He's outstanding among 10,000. Man, there's nobody like him, man. He's so valuable. She goes on, his legs are pillars of marble set on bases of pure gold. His appearance is like that of Lebanon. His arms are rods of gold set with chrysolite. His body's polished, man. Oh, that reminds me. Hey, clean yourself up, guys. <laughs> it's amazing. You know what that'll do to your romantic life? Take a shower, shave your face, whatever you got to do, whatever annoys her. I mean, you know, if the rubble stubble messes it up, man, shave it off. Go out and clean up. She'll know something's up. Uh-oh. <laughs> He's in the shower. It's the middle of the day. But anyway, um, you might try deodorant, brushing your teeth, <laughs> breath mint. Would you like one? Yeah, that's... Um, stuff like that. Anyway, she goes on, and this is in, in chapter 7. It says, May the wine go straight to my lover, flowing gently over her lips and teeth. I belong to my lover, and his desire is for me. Come, my lover, let us go. To... Now, see, this is a woman speaking. Come, let us go to the countryside together. Follow that? Let us spend the night in the villages. I, I, I'm reading bed and breakfast in all over this thing here. <laughs> Isn't it the truth? No, you don't understand. We, we, need to get, we need to get away for the weekend. See, that's a woman, right? Hey, you, we want, you want to have a romantic weekend? Then get me out of this house. Get me away from the kids. Get me away from everything that reminds us of all the pain that's going on in our life and all the stuff that we've got. Take me away somewhere, even if it's just for the weekend, and I'll show you how romantic I can be. Right, ladies? Oh, they're all going, well, don't be getting into something here. I don't want to follow through on though. You know, but that's what he's saying. I mean, look, look. And, and she goes on and says, let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines are budded, if their blossoms are open. I mean, let's go for a nice casual walk. Let's stop for a moment and smell the roses. Let's enjoy our time together. Just a nice walk through the vineyard and we can, you know, we can talk and we can walk and we can share with one another and we can hold hands. And man, we can just be together. You see what, you see what she's saying? And then he goes on and says, this is my lover and this is my friend. Wow. This is my lover, and this is my friend. If you want to fair-proof your marriage, then you need to be your mate's friend. This isn't hard stuff. It's just a matter of whether or not we believe that we need to do it. And the last thing I'll close on this is that really, if you want to fair-proof your marriage, you need to make a commitment to the Lord. And you need to make a commitment to one another. You know, the bottom line of marriage is commitment. A vow is to be spoken, a promise was made. Till death do us part, forsaking all others. God, with your help and in your strength, and by applying these principles, I make a commitment to you that I'll be faithful to my wife. No matter whether she meets my needs or not, no matter whether she's doing the things that I would hope that she does or not, that's not the issue, that's not the question. There's a greater principle involved, and that is that I want to do what's right before you. 
See, and God's begging us. He's saying, Chuck, cast all your cares upon me, and I promise you that I'll care for you. When your wife doesn't care for you, when your husband doesn't care for you, when he or she doesn't seem to care about what's going on in your marriage, the only thing that will hold it together is a commitment to the Lord that he promises that he'll meet all of our needs. I know some of us are frustrated in our marriages. We begin to think that he or she never change. They don't listen. Uh, we're entertaining thoughts of maybe somebody else in our life. Uh, we've got a specific person in mind, and we need to recognize that. And many of us may not even recognize the fact that we're going down the wrong road. So in conclusion, what I want to do is I want to go over just quickly what I will call an extramarital affair checklist, okay, and see if these are true of your life. You're in danger if you find yourself drifting away from your spouse. You don't really care to spend any time together. You don't care whether you've been together for a while. You don't care that you don't do things together anymore. You just don't seem to have any interest anymore. And There's a certain sense of apathy that's going on in your relationship. Well, God says, you know what? You're in a dangerous situation. Number two, if you're making excuses for frequent visits with someone else, then you're in trouble. If you're lying about who you're with and where you're at, and I'm working late at night, or I'm going out of town on business, or whatever it is, and you're lying to try to cover being with someone else, then you've got a problem. You see the movie Mr. Holland's Opus? Okay, now, do you remember the one part where the girl Rowena was having a crush on her teacher? And it was obvious where it could all lead, and it was a very uncomfortable moment for many people sitting watching the film. And he began to write this piece of music that was, in, was really named after her. And, and, uh, and uh, Dreyfus's wife comes over and says, Oh, who's Rowena? Because it was something Rowena's theme or something like that. And do you remember what he did? He lied. He looked at her and said, Oh, she's a character in a Greek myth. And he lied. That's a danger sign that he couldn't tell her what was going on. She's a student of mine, and I think she has a crush on me, and she wants me to meet her tonight, and you know what? I think that the two of us should go together. Wow. You know, it's funny. Parade Magazine had an article last week. It said, Can a secret relationship enrich you? And the sad part of all of it is it came to the conclusion that, yeah, that's really good for you. It's nonsense. You can't have any secrets because those secrets are, will lead to problems. How are you handling repeated contact with someone in a work or social situation? The touching, the conversation, the things that we've already talked about. Are you finding yourself preoccupied by thoughts of someone else, entertaining those in your mind? Do the gifts that you exchange with close friends communicate friendship or romance? And do the gifts that you exchange, does your partner know about these? Is he or she aware of it? I don't know how many times I've talked to people that find themselves in the midst of an extramarital affair and all of a sudden they begin to dig through financial records and see where money's being spent and gifts are being given. And what's so sad about all of that is that, you know what, sir or ma'am, if you did the same thing with your husband or wife, guess what? They'd be just as attracted to you as the person that you end up attracting by doing all these things. Take your wife to dinner. Buy her flowers. Take her to a hotel for the weekend. And I'll guarantee you one thing, man. She's going to be in love with you all over again. Are you using the telephone frequently to develop a relationship with someone? The new danger, I may add, are these chat rooms on computers 
where you end up entertaining a relationship with a person that you don't see, but you develop a relationship and you form an emotional bond, and that emotional bond will end up ultimately leading to a point where you'll want to get together. Just knock that off. Are you putting yourself into situations where you might increase your chances of meeting a potential lover? Simply put, if you're on the road or you're going down to the lounge and hanging out and feeling sorry for yourself because you're on the road again all alone, don't even go there. Don't even think about it. Does the way you dress, touch, and talk with your eyes say, I'm available? And I like this last point. And that is that are you weakening your defenses and poten for a potential affair by using alcohol or some other drug? Let me tell you something. You may use that as an excuse. Well, I got drunk, and I, I didn't mean for this to happen, but it just happened. But let me tell you something. You got drunk, and you are responsible for whatever happens after that. So if any of these things are true, you're in dangerous water. There's a way that seems right to man. Its end is always destruction. So I'm not trying to offer any cookie-cutter solutions to the problem of extramarital affairs. I know how, how delicate it is. I know how intertwining that it is and all those things. But I do believe if, if we remain teachable, if we remain willing to learn from and about the mate that God has given us, and if we're willing to apply these principles, minister to your mate's sexual needs, Meet your mate's emotional needs. Maintain a pure thought life. Monitor your relationship with others. Marvel at your mate's assets and make a commitment to the Lord. I believe if we apply these steps, then what we'll end up with is a healthy, dynamic marriage. And in the bottom line, the final analysis, a healthy and dynamic marriage will affair-proof your relationship every time. Because if you're happy and content with one another, there's nothing that anybody else can offer you that you already have at home. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this time to be together. Thank you for your word, how plain it is, how clear it is. And God, I would just pray that we can, each one of us, be motivated to apply these principles, to believe that it is an actual threat upon us, to ignore these things that are dangerous for our relationship with one another. We just thank you for these principles. We thank you for the simplicity of it. And now we would just pray that you would give us the motivation and the strength to fulfill these and to carry them out. And we just praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, next.